We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 10 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, March 4th, 2021. Yes, I said episode 10. We have reached double digits in terms of episodes of this podcast. We've gotten to 10, 10 episodes. The Vegas over-under was four. We've made it to 10. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. And it's good to have you on board. The Express, that is the Al Galdi podcast. Great to have you as a part of of the revolution. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word, let people know about what we're doing. Every weekday, out by 5 a.m., top 10 ratings on Apple Podcasts. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from Eric K. Uh, Eric wrote, hope you're proud, Al. Just helped 20 customers find your podcast. 
on Google Play. Well, thank you, Eric. How about that? See, Eric is a soldier on the ground in the revolution. He is a disciple. He is an apostle. That's what we need. That's the kind of commitment to this thing that we need from you people. So we salute you, Eric, here uh, on this Thursday. Plenty to do on the show today. The Jets say they are open to listening to trade offers for Sam Darnold. Will the Washington football team be among the teams making an offer? Should the Washington football team be among the teams making an offer? We'll get into that in just a bit. I've got more on Deshaun Watson for you today off something multiple listeners to this podcast brought up to me on Wednesday. And it's a worthy point, so I'm going to address it uh, coming up in a little while here. Should Washington be interested in Golden Tate, who's being released by the Giants? We're going to get into that on today's show. We have no more cheerleaders for Washington. The first ladies of football are no more coming to you. Live and in living color will be a co-ed dance squad. How do we feel about that? The cheerleaders, by the way, not happy about that. They were blowing up the Twitter mentions of the team president, Jason Wright, on Wednesday. We'll get into all of that today. Big win for the Capitals at Boston on Wednesday night. Bad loss for Maryland at Northwestern on Wednesday night, though the loss really truly isn't that big of a deal. You don't like to see it happen, but it's not the end of the world either. And we do have some concerning news for the Nationals regarding John Lester. We'll talk about that as well. So I know today is Thursday. I am still working on GoGo Thursday. I wanted to update you guys on that. But like I've said, I mean, there is no easy answer. You can't use copyrighted music on podcasts. And I know some people said, well, this podcast uses this song and that podcast uses that song. That's fine. Uh, you know, if they get sued, they're in trouble. If I get sued, I'm not sure who I'm going to turn to here. Maybe Beth Wilkinson, when she's done this investigation into Dan Snyder, can come on board for me and uh, help me out. But anyway, here's the deal. If you are in a go-go band, or you know of a go-go band that wants to submit to me a go-go song or go-go songs to play on go-go Thursdays, let me know. Because we can certainly do it that way. Take songs from local bands, local groups, and submit them to me, and I can play them. I can work them into a Go-Go Thursday mix on this podcast. You know, we talk about the revolution, the grassroots effort that is the Al Galdi podcast. That could be a really cool aspect of things, representing not just local music in Go-Go Thursday, but representing the music of local bands on Go-Go Thursday. Uh, on this podcast. So you can email me what you got. Uh, I am wide open to this here. I'm open-minded to how we end up doing this. Uh, the email address, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So I'm thinking that may well be the best way to keep the weekly honoring of the music of the nation's capital moving forward. Go, go Thursday, submit to me songs you would like for me to play, publicize you, publicize your band, and we can do that here. Again, the Al Galdi podcast at Yahoo. All right, Sam, I am. Is he now truly in play for the Washington football team? So Wednesday has come and gone, and Alex Smith still on the Washington football team as we converse here on this Thursday morning. That doesn't mean that Alex is going to be on the Washington football team for much longer, but we thought by now the release would have happened. It has not. I don't think that really means or is telling of anything, but it is worth making mention of. So perhaps this Thursday is the day on which Washington officially parts ways with Alex. In the meantime, though, of course, the search continues for QB number three to add to your mix of Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke, and that does rhyme, 
Uh, and we got this on Wednesday. Jets general manager Joe Douglas saying in a video conference with reporters that he is willing to listen to trade offers for Sam Darnold. Quote, I will answer the call if it's made. As it pertains to Sam, we think Sam is a dynamic player in this league with unbelievable talent. He really has a chance to hit his outstanding potential moving forward. But if calls are made, I will answer them. End quote. So this will not be a Houston Texans Deshaun Watson situation, as was reported by Tom Pelissero of NFL Network and NFL.com a few days back when he said that the Texans are just sending calls about Watson in terms of trading for him to voicemail and that teams were leaving voicemails for the Texans on what those teams would be willing to give up for Deshaun Watson. At least that's how Pelissero framed it uh, a few days back. The Jets will be answering the phone call. Joe Douglas will be a willing recipient of what you have to say when it comes to Sam Darnold. So this is news because it wasn't that long ago, uh, in fact, two Mondays ago, that we had multiple reports that the Jets could take a while when it came to what they wanted to do with Sam Darnold. And what Joe Douglas said on Wednesday doesn't necessarily mean that the Jets are looking to trade Sam Darnold, but of course it is a sign of, well, we are open for business. We are willing to listen. But remember how things were framed a couple of Mondays back. Uh, Albert Breer of the MMQB NFL Insider reporting that resolution regarding Darnold, quote, might not be for a little while, end quote, as the Jets were planning to assess the quarterbacks set to be available with that Jets number two overall pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. Ian Rappaport, NFL Network and NFL.com insider, saying on Monday, February 22nd, that per sources, the Jets were, quote, planning to complete their evaluations, end quote, of the top quarterbacks in the 2021 draft before making any decisions on Darnold. And Rappaport said that these evaluations included things like, you know, pro days and interviews, and that the Jets had received real interest in Darnold. But again, the Jets were going to take their time. So it still may be that the Jets are taking their time, but they're willing to listen, which I think is an indication of, all right, we may not know for sure, for sure what we want to do, but we're kind of leaning in a certain direction here. I mean, if you really have no interest in trading away Sam Darnold, you don't speak as Joe Douglas spoke on Wednesday. And I don't blame him for speaking that way. Having that number two overall pick, you're going to have a shot at any quarterback not named Trevor Lawrence. And especially with this guy, Zach Wilson at a BYU, people are loving themselves some Zach Wilson. A recent hot take that you may have seen from some people is that Zach Wilson is actually a better quarterback prospect than Trevor Lawrence. I wouldn't say that, but that is a thing. Like the stock of Zach Wilson has soared over these last few months. Now, when it comes to Washington and Darnold, and is Washington interested in Darnold, the best intel we've gotten on that came from NFL media on Sunday morning, February 7th, uh, saying to expect Washington, quote, to weigh all quarterback options, including if Sam Darnold is made available, end quote. So this would seem to be a green light for Ron Rivera or Martin Mayhew or Marty Herney to pick up the phone, call Joe Douglas, and see what it might take to get Sam Darnold if, in fact, that phone call hasn't already been made. You know where I stand on this by now. My preference for Washington when it comes to adding QB3, who could end up being QB1, is the draft. I would love for that to be the way Washington does quarterback here this offseason. Someone young, someone with real upside, someone with low mileage on his body, someone who Ron and Marty and Martin believe could end up blossoming. I'm not interested in a veteran stopgap measure, you know, just to tread water for a season. And I'm really not supremely interested in any of the younger quarterbacks 
who figure to be out there, okay? Like, I'm, I'm moving off to the side people like Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson, guys who either aren't realistically going to be traded, or if they are traded, it sure doesn't seem like uh, they'll be traded to our team. So if you're talking about a Sam Darnold or a Marcus Mariota, young or relatively young quarterbacks, I mean, I'm not overwhelmed. I don't think anybody is, you know? I'm not like, oh my God, you've got to get your hands on Sam Darnold. I don't view it that way. I would say though, and I would say this about basically anybody, if Ron and Marty and Martin believe in the player, if Ron and Martin and Marty believe that there is untapped talent and there is in fact significant upside to bringing this guy on board, rehabbing him, developing him, molding him in your vision for what you feel like he can be in your offense, then go ahead and do it. You got to be open to all kinds of things in the situation that Washington is in. So I would be open to Sam Darnold. I'm not going to be dismissive of Sam Darnold, but I'm not floored by Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold's going into his age 24 season. He, of course, was taken by the Jets' number three overall pick in the 2018 draft. So let's start with that, okay? Any team upon trading for Sam Darnold this offseason is going to have to decide whether to exercise the fifth-year option in his rookie contract, okay? So it's not like you're just getting Darnold and, all right, you got him under team control for years to come. You got to make your decision on the fifth-year option in Darnold's rookie contract this offseason. He's under contract for this coming season, 2021, but the way it works with first-round picks is you have to decide on the fifth-year option the May before that guy's fourth season in the league. We're already going into year number four for Sam Darnold. And having been the number three overall pick in 2018, that fifth-year option for what would be the 2022 season, that's not a nothing option. It's not like some $2 million option. We don't know exactly what that number is, but we know it's going to be something significant. Now, if you believe in a guy and you think he could be your QB1, then go ahead and exercise the option. But understand, contractually, you got to decide before he takes a single snap for you in a game what you want to do with Darnold beyond 2021. So you start with that. Now, Darnold so far in his NFL career has not been good. The numbers are, in fact, brutal. 38 regular season games, 45 touchdown passes versus 39 interceptions. He's got almost a one-to-one touchdown pass to interception ratio. Not good. Uh, Career yards per pass attempt, 6.64. Not good. Career completion percentage, 59.8. Not good. Career sack percentage, which is simply time sacked divided by pass attempts plus time sacked, 7.4. Not good. And if you view Darnold through the prism of the ESPN total QBR stat, 0 to 100 is the scale. Here are Darnold's season-by-season QBRs so far. 2018, 45.9. 2019, 45.6. 2020, 40.1. Dead last out of 33 qualified quarterbacks. The best single one-stop shop quarterback stat is QBR. Sam Darnold was the worst in the NFL in 2020 among the qualified QBs. Dead last out of 33 guys, a 40.1 total QBR in 2020. Now, in defense of Darnold, he's been a part of a mess with the Jets. No doubt. When you spend your first three seasons with the Jets, uh, that is a prison the likes of which we may not have elsewhere in the NFL. I mean, people mock our team and our situation all the time. The truth is, 
Washington's last 25 years, as bad as they've been, blow away what the Jets have been over the last 25 years. Like, at least with our team, okay? At least with our team. For all of the bad, you do have multiple division championships, right? 2012, 2015, 2020. Like, no, we're not hanging banners for those, but at least you can say that. Three times over the last 10 years, our team has won a division title. The Jets haven't sniffed a division title in forever. The Jets, of course, had as their head coach the last two seasons, Adam Gase and his wandering taco eyes and the complete dysfunction that that situation became. And so it's not been good. He's been in a bad spot. You know, I just ran through all these different stats that aren't very good. It may well be that a lot of that, maybe even the majority of that, has to do with Sam Darnold's surroundings and not so much Sam Darnold himself. Like, it may well be that Sam Darnold has a ton of talent, ton of upside, waiting to be exploited by a proper functional coaching staff and organization. But I'll tell you something else about Sam Darnold. He's also had a difficult time staying healthy. You know, I, I get a kick out of the people who say, well, Kyle Allen, Taylor Heineke, well, they've just been hurt so much. Like, they're not going to last beyond a game or two as a starting quarterback. Maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, not a guy is uh, Cam Newton in terms of size. But, I mean, it's not like Sam Darnold has been some pillar of durability. By the way, it's not like Marcus Mariota has been some pillar of durability. So, like, if you're all worked up about Allen and Heineke and how they've gotten hurt quite a bit already, given in each guy's limited sample size, that's fine. But don't sit here and tell me that, you know, Sam Darnold has been London Fletcher in terms of his availability. 2018, he missed three games due to a foot injury. This past season, 2020, he missed four games, two games in October, two games in November due to a shoulder injury. 2019, he missed three games due to mono, which, you know, I know isn't an injury, but he's missed at least three games Darnold has in each of his three seasons so far. So that is something to be mentioned. And obviously, when you're coming off a season in which you missed a quarter of the games due to a shoulder, that's not nothing, right? That is something to be mindful of. Now, again, if Ron and Marty and Martin see upside in Sam Darnold, make an offer, get him on board. I'm not against it. But sitting here right now, I'm not overwhelmed by him. And I'm not convinced like this would be so much better than, say, spending the number 19 overall pick on Trey Lance or trading up a few spots to take Trey Lance or, you know, taking a flyer on Kyle Trask or Mac Jones or whomever Ron and Marty and Martin may actually like in this 2021 quarterback class. Again, that's the wild card in all of this with the quarterback situation. What does the Washington football team believe about this quarterback draft class. Does Washington like these likely two available QBs, given that Washington has that number 19 overall pick? Or, you know, do Ron and Marty and Martin not like any of them, really? You know, after Trevor Lawrence, I feel like it's a big drop-off. It's an overrated quarterback class. You're actually better off trading for Sam Darnold. And the good news with Sam Darnold is you're not going to have to give up your number 19 overall pick to get him. I, I mean, I think we can say that with pretty much certainty at this point. You know, now, what does it cost? Maybe your second-round pick. Maybe both of your third round picks, maybe a third round pick and a player. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, it's hard to project in general trade compensation in the NFL. I think it's particularly difficult with someone like Darnold, who again, number three overall pick just a few years ago, but again, very underwhelming over his first three seasons. One more thing, by the way, with Darnold and the Jets, and I came across this early this morning. I got a kick out of this. So do you know that the Jets have not had a 4,000-yard passer since Joe Namath in 1967, okay? Namath actually was the first 4,000-yard passer in history. 
But that's a 53-season drought for the Jets in terms of not having a 4,000-yard passer. That's the second longest such drought in the NFL. The Chicago Bears, in fact, have never had a 4,000-yard passer. But that's really amazing when you think about that. 4,000 passing yards really isn't that big of a deal in the NFL anymore. Now, if you get to that plateau as a quarterback in a season, like that is a good season, that is an accomplishment. But it happens all the time, guys throwing for 4,000 yards. This past regular season, 12 quarterbacks each threw for at least 4,000 yards. I mean, in terms of the Washington football team, even our team, with all of its quarterback problems over the years, over the decades, has had multiple 4,000-yard passers. Jay Schrader threw for 4,000 yards in 1986. Brad Johnson threw for 4,000 yards in 1999. Kirk Cousins had three consecutive 4,000-yard passing seasons, 2015 through 2017. The Jets haven't had one in 53 seasons, 1967 was the last time. And the Bears are even worse. They've never had a 4,000-yard passer. I I got a kick out of that. That really is something in terms of just quarterback ineptitude and quarterback dysfunction that you can't even get to that 4,000-yard mark in terms of a quarterback in a season. Well, speaking of quarterbacks. So on Wednesday's podcast, we talked about longtime NFL insider John McClain of the Houston Chronicle, and he on B. Mitch and Finley on 106.7 The Fan on Tuesday, having said that he, i.e. McClain, had, quote, not heard Washington come up one time, end quote, regarding the Washington football team potentially trading for Houston Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson. McClain said that five teams had called about Watson and suggested, by the way, that three first-round picks, two second-round picks, and a player might be necessary to get a deal done. And I advocated for, hey, at least make the phone call if you're Washington, if you haven't already. It was a little confusing, a little unclear what McClain was saying. Like, was he saying that, well, look, I just haven't heard that Washington has come up? Or was he literally saying Washington hasn't even made the phone call? Washington has not even tried to trade for Deshaun Watson. So we're not really sure about that. Certainly, if you're Washington, you should make the call, okay? And even if the Texans aren't answering the phone, leave a voicemail and, and you know, say, hey, we're interested. What would it take? You know, th- th- there's no sense in not trying, even though it is highly unlikely. A, Watson's got to waive his no trade clause to want to come here. But B, Washington does not have the draft capital that other teams like the Miami Dolphins and the New York Jets have to pull off a blockbuster like this one. Anyway, I think Deshaun Watson is great. I know a lot of you think that, and I would take him here in a heartbeat, and I would do the RG3 trade for Deshaun Watson, three ones and two twos. That may not be enough, but I would do that to get Deshaun Watson, a guy in his mid-20s, stud quarterback, produced big time this past season without DeAndre Hopkins, and every indication is he is someone who can be great for many years to come. Now, got a lot of feedback to the Deshaun Watson conversation on Wednesday's podcast. Got this tweet from John Boggs. You can always tweet me, of course, at Al Galdi. Writes John, regarding Watson, does a guy like that who thinks he should have input in players fit Ron's new culture? I wouldn't call the Texans either. I also got an email from one of my favorites, Sabah. If you remember on radio, Sabah was one of the most loyal and frequent callers and honestly, one of my favorite callers. Always made very good points when it came to the Washington football team. Great passion for the Washington football team. In fact, she once told a story of having given birth 
with a Washington football team game on the television in the delivery room. That's dedication, people. You are popping out a kid and you're making sure your Washington football team is getting the job done. But anyway, Sabah emailed me and you can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Sabah said, Al just heard your podcast and was surprised to hear you would trade three ones, two twos, and maybe a player for Deshaun Watson. I respectfully disagree. He just signed the second richest contract in NFL history four months or so ago, then wants out, triple exclamation mark. We won't have control of him for four years. Houston didn't have four months control unless we don't ever upset him. He is not a great leader. Great leaders don't turn their backs on their teammates by blaming them for the 4-12 and record. When he complains that management isn't getting him talented players, that's insulting to his teammates. I would not touch Watson with a 10-foot pole. Wow. How about like a 15 foot pole? Would you, would you entertain that or just, just 10? That, that's where the cutoff is. Anyway, I hear you guys. And actually what you're bringing up is not unreasonable. The fact that Deshaun Watson, per the reporting, is upset with the Texans, in part at least, and maybe even for the most part, for not having been more involved in terms of the hiring of the Texans new general manager, this guy Nick Casario, who was brought over from the New England Patriots. Uh, according to a big article that came out on SI.com on January 16th, Watson was upset about not being more involved in the hiring of Casario and reads the article. Watson was told by team owner Cal McNair he would have input in the search for the franchise's next general manager and head coach, and the two talked on multiple occasions through the season's final weeks. The Monday after the season ended, Watson took off for a vacation in Mexico to think about his future. What he didn't know was that a plan was already underway, one that was not born out of his input or that of multiple high-ranking team executives, prominent consultants, or the search firm McNair, i.e. the owner Cal McNair, had paid handsomely to choose the team's new leaders. Rather, the person accompanying McNair on a flight out of town Monday morning was the one the owner had asserted would not be part of the team's search committee and whose future he said would be decided by the next GM, Easterby end quote. And Easterby is Jack Easterby, who is the Houston Texans executive vice president of football operations. There's also been a lot of reporting out there that Deshaun Watson wanted the Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy to at least have been a serious candidate for the Texans head coaching job. Bieniemy did end up being interviewed, but he obviously ended up not getting the job. So yeah, I hear you on that. It's kind of like, well, gee, why should a player have input in who the team hires as a head coach to say nothing of who the team hires as a GM. And in general, I would be on board with you. I'd be like, no, your role as a player is to play, play well, work hard, and upper management handles who the general manager is, who the head coach is. I hear you guys on that. I do. But I think the Texan situation is different, and it's different for a few reasons. Number one, Deshaun Watson was told by Cal McNair that Deshaun would have input, would have a role in the hiring of the GM. Now, I don't think the owner should have said that, but if you're going to say that, you need to deliver on that. And McNair very clearly did not deliver on that. So I can see where Watson may well be coming from on that. You're told one thing, and then like the exact opposite ends up happening. You might say, well, McNair just said that to placate Watson. Well, that's not a good enough reason. I mean, you're the owner. You got to be up front with him. If Cal McNair had no interest in Deshaun Watson having any input in who the next GM would be, then McNair should have conveyed that. He shouldn't have told Watson, no, man, you're going to be involved. Of course, you're a guy. 
We extended you. You're going to have major input in who we hire. And then like completely ignore them. I mean, that's not the way to go on something like that. The other thing is this deal with Jack Easterby. I don't know about you, but if you've been following this Deshaun Watson situation with the Texans, it's impossible to read about Jack Easterby and not think about Bruce Allen and not draw the parallels between Jack and Bruce in terms of how each guy became viewed by the team's fan base and by so many in the organization. I mean, Easterby and Allen, the two situations are very close. And yes, I said close. It means you're close. Exactly, Brucey. Thank you. Yes, it does mean you're close. Two situations that are very close in terms of how things have evolved. So like I said, Jack Easterby is the Texans executive vice president of football operations, was promoted to the role in January 2020 of having been hired by the Texans in April 2019. He spent six seasons, Easterby did, with the New England Patriots. And Easterby has grown to be very close with Cal McNair. Again, parallel, right? The way Bruce became very close with Dan Snyder until apparently there was the major falling out. And Danny now says that Brucey was a part of the smear campaign against Danny. But that said, the Easterby thing is bizarre. It's strange. You know, there was this in that SI.com piece from January, quote, a former team chaplain turned character coach in New England and now Houston's executive VP of football operations. Easterby had made a habit of asking coworkers to take his hand and pray for wisdom when making workplace decisions. He often did so with people who reported to him. Some felt they had no choice but to oblige, even if this made them uncomfortable, end quote. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with being religious. There's nothing wrong with being a person of faith. I actually think one of the issues in our current society is the way people will look down on religion. You know, I mean, I think to each his own, like if you're not religious, it doesn't make you a bad person. But if you are, it also doesn't make you some kook. But if you're religious, I don't think it's right to try to impose your religion on others or to try to make people do things or put them in a position where they feel like they have to do things they're not comfortable with. So I could see how Easter be doing this stuff, if in fact it's true, could rub people the wrong way. To say nothing of how quickly he's grown close to Cal McNair, and to say nothing of how bad the Texans have become. And that, at the end of the day, is what this is about. I mean, this to me is the most important point. The Texans have fallen off a cliff, okay? Cal McNair, Jack Easterby presided over an organization that had Bill O'Brien as both head coach and general manager, and it was one screw up after another. You know, nothing was worse. Nothing was worse than that trading away of DeAndre Hopkins last offseason. A trade that seemingly came out of nowhere and a trade that will never make sense in terms of the compensation. Here you have DeAndre Hopkins, maybe the best receiver in the NFL. I mean, if he's not the best, he's certainly on the short list, right? The Texans trade Hopkins and a 2020 fourth round pick to the Arizona Cardinals for a declining running back in David Johnson, a 2020 second round pick, and a 2021 fourth round pick. That's it. One of the most significant instances of player personnel malpractice in recent NFL history. Hopkins and a fourth rounder for David Johnson, a second rounder and a fourth rounder. DeAndre Hopkins, it's not just by the way that he's great, okay? And by the way, had a big season for the Cardinals this past year. It's also that he had three years and just $39.9 million 
left on his contract. So it's not like he was like going into free agency or anything like that. DeAndre Hopkins, elite receiver, under team control for the next three seasons at just $39.9 million on the deal. And you gift him away to the Arizona Cardinals. It is unbelievable to this day that that trade was allowed to be made. So if I'm Deshaun Watson and I've seen all this, I've experienced all this, I can get why he wants out. I mean, do I love that he was trying to dictate who the GM would be? No, but if you were in his shoes, you had his talent, okay? You had his hopes and dreams for being an all-time great quarterback, and you were surrounded by this dumpster fire that had become the Houston Texans. I kind of get where he's coming from. I do. So I would not let the fact that Deshaun Watson wanted input on the general manager hiring, wanted input on the head coach hiring uh, to sway me away from wanting to trade for Deshaun Watson. Again, it's so far-fetched that Washington pulls off that trade for all the reasons we've discussed. But I would not let Deshaun Watson, having wanted input in some things with the Texans, turn me off to wanting Deshaun Watson on my team. While we're talking about who the Washington football team should and shouldn't want, we had news late Wednesday that the New York Giants are releasing receiver Golden Tate. Golden Tate, a big money free agent signing by the Giants just a couple of off seasons ago. March 2019, the Giants signed Tate to a four-year $36.3 million contract that included $22.95 million fully guaranteed at signing. And the bottom line is, and there's no debating this, Golden Tate was a golden bust for the G-Men. 23 games. That's it for Tate over two seasons with the Giants, including, by the way, missing the first four games of his first season with the team due to a PED suspension. Tate, over those 23 games for the Giants, ends up totaling just 1,064 receiving yards. He, this past season, 2020, became the Giants' number three receiver, was behind both Sterling Shepard and Darius Slayton. And Tate this past season also, and you may remember this because it ended up impacting our team, complained about his lack of opportunities. And his wife, Elise, on Instagram complained about her husband's lack of opportunities to where Tate didn't even make the trip for the Giants for their game at FedEx Field in Week 9, a game that Washington did lose, 23-20. But Golden Tate was not a part of the Giants that weekend. Wasn't even, like I said, with the team. Didn't even make the trip for that game. So he became a malcontent. He underproduced. He missed a lot of time. He was a bust. $23 million fully guaranteed over these last two years for Golden Tate. Now, Golden Tate has a connection to the Washington football team. He was signed by the Detroit Lions in March 2014 when our current general manager, Martin Mayhew, was the Lions general manager. And Tate actually was a productive player for the Lions. He had 3,000-yard receiving seasons for Detroit from 2014 until he was traded by the Lions to the Philadelphia Eagles in October 2018. But he's going into his age 33 season. He is not someone who has been productive over the last few years. He's missed significant time over the last few years. He became, like I just said, a malcontent with the Giants last season. Uh, I'm not interested, okay? I'm not a person who's going to mount the horse of, you got to get Golden Tate here, you know? We go through this exercise, right, every offseason where this guy gets cut, that guy gets cut. It's like, well, he's connected to us. We got to bring him here. Like, I don't look at Golden Tate that way. I talked about Kyle Van Noy on Wednesday's podcast. I do feel like Kyle Van Noy would make a lot of sense for the Washington football team uh, if, in fact, Van Noy is released. I know there's some talk that 
the Miami Dolphins may try to trade Van Noy. You know, I wouldn't be against giving up some kind of mid to late round pick for Van Noy, but, you know, especially if he's cut and you can give him your own contract and, you know, you don't have to give up any true compensation to get him. I would love to get my hands on Kyle Van Noy. I think he could be part of a linebacker fix for Washington in 2021. Van Noy has been, for the most part, healthy, although he did deal with a hip injury this past year, but he largely has been healthy. He certainly has been very durable throughout his career. He doesn't miss games. He's been productive in recent seasons. He offers position flex from a standpoint of having played both inside linebacker and edge rusher. He was a team captain. Van Noy was for the Dolphins last year. You know, Van Noy was not a malcontent for Miami, certainly as best as we can tell. Tate was. Tate's older. Tate hasn't been productive. Uh, No thank you on Golden Tate to the Washington football team. And look, Washington does need to upgrade at receiver. I mean, one of the lessons of 2020 for Washington at receiver was you don't have a true number two, okay? It was a very disappointing second season for Steven Sims. Cam Sims certainly flashed, especially late in the year, but Cam Sims still does have some issues with drops. It was a lost rookie season for Antonio Gandy-Golden, largely due to injury. And of course, you didn't have Kelvin Harmon at all during the season due to a badly injured knee. So you got real questions at receiver beyond Terry McLaurin. I think you need to bring in a true number two, maybe assign someone. I certainly would be on board with Washington trying to sign Curtis Samuel, younger player, productive player, very fast player, another position flex player, because he also shined as a ball carrier for the Carolina Panthers over the last few years, in addition to as a pass catcher, and obviously someone who Ron Rivera, Scott Turner know quite well. But I'm not just going to say, well, just bring this receiver, that receiver. Like, no, you want to get someone who makes sense. I want youth. I want durability. I want someone who fits the new culture. And I think Curtis Samuel would check all those boxes. I don't think Golden Tate does. Just say no to Golden Tate. In fact, those of you who were children of the 80s, if you remember the Nancy Reagan Just Say No campaign, just say no to drugs. Just say no. Yes, thank you, Nancy. I appreciate that. Just say no. To Golden Tate. Just say no. Yes, just say no to Golden Tate. Just say no. There's one other Washington football team related item that I wanted to get into with you here on today's podcast, and that is this. So, of course, we continue to await the reveal of the findings of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Beth Wilkinson, the high level attorney who has been hired to investigate this Washington football team's sexual harassment scandal, what went down, who knew what and when, etc. We first heard about this Beth Wilkinson investigation July 16th of last year. Today is March 4th, and we've had zero indication of when or really even if we're going to find out the findings of the investigation. This whole thing has taken a very long time. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? You do want to do a thorough job, but you do wonder, like, what's the holdup here? What exactly is going on behind the scenes to where this investigation either isn't complete or has been completed and the findings of it aren't being revealed? Anyway, of course, one of the big aspects of the sexual harassment scandal is what has gone down with the cheerleaders. That second major article by the Washington Post on the sexual harassment scandal came out uh, late August of last year, really put a spotlight on what allegedly has gone down with Washington football's cheerleaders over the years. You know, maybe the biggest item in that article was that direct implication of Dan Snyder 
Uh, one of the woman, one of the women, former cheerleader Tiffany Bacon Scourby, accused Dan of having approached her at a 2004 charity event at which the cheerleaders were performing, and suggested that she join his close friend in a hotel room so they could quote get to know each other better. End quote. Uh, Scourby's account was supported by three friends she spoke to shortly afterward uh, about the alleged incident including the team's former cheerleader director. The other big thing in that second post article, of course, was the videos scenario, okay? Uh, Dan also was implicated via quite the allegation that also involved Larry Michael. This guy, Brad Baker, who was a producer in the team's broadcast department 2007 to 2009, alleged that the taping of Beauties on the Beach, which was this official video chronicling the making of the Washington NFL team's 2008 cheerleader swimsuit calendar, included the taping of another video intended strictly for private use that featured moments when nipples were inadvertently exposed as the women shifted positions or adjusted props. Baker said that Michael told staffers to make the video for Dan. Michael, in fairness to him, has adamantly denied the allegation. But the cheerleader stuff became very big stuff. And a lot of conversation has been had about, okay, well, what now with Washington football's cheerleaders? You know, there's been this mobilizing, especially of former cheerleaders, to try to come together and, you know, you tell us what you experienced, that kind of a thing. Gloria Allred, another high-powered attorney, uh, came to represent multiple former cheerleaders, actually put out a statement late August of last year saying, uh, we're doing our own investigation into the facts. We had a settlement That was revealed via multiple reports this past February 10th that the Washington football team had reached a settlement with former cheerleaders who appeared in the lewd videos uh, made without the cheerleaders' knowledge. So all kinds of stuff has been going on just specific to the cheerleaders in this sexual harassment scandal situation. And now we have this, the news on Wednesday that the Washington football team is discontinuing its cheerleader program, uh, which had been paused, and is replacing the cheerleader program with a co-ed dance squad. Included in this news is the hiring of Petra Pope as a senior advisor. Uh, Petra Pope spent 33 years in the NBA, including serving as manager of the Laker girls and starting the Knicks City Dancers. And the team president for Washington, Jason Wright, in a statement on Wednesday said that Washington is wanting to create halftime programs similar to those in the NBA. Now, what was also notable about all this yesterday was that the cheerleaders apparently didn't know. They apparently had no idea that the program was being discontinued and all of them essentially are out of jobs. Now, Pope did tell ESPN that the former cheerleaders are eligible to try out for the co-ed dance squad, but you're not guaranteed anything. And it was remarkable. And if you're on social media, especially if you're on Twitter, you know this, it was remarkable the extent to which Washington's cheerleaders sounded off on Wednesday, okay? First Lady Shannon on Twitter on Wednesday morning, quote, Oh, thanks for letting us know this way. Very kind of you. She later that morning tweeted in response to something that Jason Wright quote tweeted. Now, Jason, we all have already been huge fans of Petra. She is not and will never be the issue. Do you remember the question I asked you when we all met for a check-in earlier in the season? Do you remember any of the dialogue we've had with you guys over the course of the season. Another cheerleader, First Lady Candace, on Wednesday morning tweeted, I had such high hopes and respect when Jason and honestly Julie, i.e. Julie Donaldson, got hired as well, but I've left the organization with the complete opposite opinion. It's all bad. 
from the top down. Thank you for support, however. It seriously means so much. And Julia sounded off in a series of tweets responding to Jason Wright. Free business tip. If y'all had allowed HR to answer our emails and calls, we wouldn't be coming at you through social and the media. You're teaching the world that our voices don't matter. You're actively choosing not to change the culture for women. But guess what? You still have women working for you. Trainers, coaches, refs, salespeople, HR, etc. All these women make game day possible. You are not an ally for women in sports. The cheerleaders drop the hammer on Jason Wright and the Washington football team for the discontinuing of the Washington football team's cheerleader program on Wednesday. It was amazing. This was like a a striking back by the current cheerleaders against the team. So Washington started using cheerleaders all the way back in 1962. And if you really pay attention to this stuff, I know a lot of you don't, and I don't blame you for not paying attention to it, but especially with, you know, the Washington football team being such a big deal in the D.C. area. I know I certainly came to know this, and I'm guessing actually a lot of you listening came to know this too. The the cheerleaders, they became known as the first ladies of football, and you saw them around the community. Like, being a Washington football team cheerleader wasn't just about showing up on game days and, you know, dancing. It's also been about representing the team a bunch. The Washington football team's cheerleaders, you would see them at events locally, at events nationally, heck, at events internationally. Like, the first ladies of football would go to like military bases, you know? So there was a lot of stuff that went into being a Washington football team cheerleader. So I just have a few thoughts on all this, which became kind of a thing actually uh, on Wednesday. So first of all, I mean, very clearly, Washington should have communicated what was going on to the cheerleaders better, okay? I mean, I, I don't think, and I got to double check this, I don't think the Washington football team cheerleaders were full-time employees, but even if you're only a part-time employee, like you're still owed something from a standpoint of like being kept in the loop, okay? I mean, you still obviously should be treated with respect. I'm guessing a lot of these women relied on being Washington football team cheerleaders for income, maybe even a substantial part uh, of income. And so it would be nice to know kind of where things stand uh, regarding something like this. And, and the fact that there obviously was a feeling by more than one of them that they were left in the dark, that's not good, okay? I mean, if you're trying to be, you know, a better organization and, you know, more progressive and more open to things and fair to people, like, it's not cool to just keep them in the dark if, in fact, that's what happened here. And it kind of sounds like it was. Now, that said, you know, the Washington football team can do whatever it wants with its cheerleaders and with the game day experience. You know, this thing of we're trying to reimagine the game day experience, you have every right to do that. And if part of the reimagining includes no longer having Washington football team cheerleaders, okay, if you are, if you are defunding the cheerleaders, uh, you can do that. Like, you're allowed to do that. Just because you have been a cheerleader doesn't mean that you continue to be a cheerleader. I mean, this is entertainment and that's how it works, you know? Uh, when you work in entertainment as we do, okay? I mean, I talked about this a week ago on the podcast with my departure from WTEM. Like, in entertainment, you are hired to be fired, and it is a privilege to work in entertainment. It's not a right. You know, you as an entertainer, you're at the behest of two things, your audience and your employer. And it doesn't matter how clueless your employer may be, you're at the behest of your employer. That's how it works. You know that when you get into the field. So if Washington wants to do this, Washington has every right to do this. Now, The Washington football team, of course, in the wake of the sexual harassment scandal, clearly has made an attempt to be more progressive, to be more diverse. 
And I, I would address the discontinuing of the cheerleaders this way from that standpoint, okay? If the impetus for doing away with the cheerleaders and creating this co-ed dance squad is a genuine belief that a co-ed dance squad will be something fresh, different, and great, then fine. Like, if the team really truly believes that the co-ed dance squad will be better then the cheerleaders will be more entertaining. Then the cheerleaders will really help to separate the Washington football team game day experience from other game day experiences. Then fine. Uh, again, Washington can do as it wants to with these things. Okay. But, and this to me is a big but, if the true motivation for doing away with the cheerleaders and creating the co-ed dance squad is to come off as more progressive, and more diverse. You know, if this is in essence a virtue signaling of, hey, look at us. We have men and women on an even playing field. We have both sexes serving in cheerleader-like roles on our team. We're not stuck in the past with cheerleaders. We have a co-ed dance squad. Look at us. Admire us. Pay attention to us. If that's the true motivation for this, then that's wrong, okay? Because here's the deal with cheerleaders, especially when it comes to the Washington football team. There's nothing wrong with the profession of cheerleader, okay? First of all, the cheerleaders, I mean, they really have been more like dancers anyway. Like, people hear the word cheerleader, and you think about that, like, traditional thing of you're walking around in a skirt, you know, waving pom-poms and, you know, rah-rah shishkumba. Like, that's not really what cheerleaders are anymore. They really are dancers. Like, they really are a dance team. And the thing is, what quote-unquote cheerleaders do, and this is not just an NFL thing, this is really across, you know, the NBA and other sports too, it requires a lot of athleticism, a lot of stamina, a lot of preparation, and a lot of poise. Like, the idea that being a cheerleader is just about looking good and not much more, that is antiquated. That is archaic, okay? Watch the television show, the reality show, Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders, in case you're unaware, all right? My wife watches that all the time. I think it's on the Country Music Channel, and it is hot and heavy in terms of the competition, the battling that goes on amongst these women in terms of trying to make the team year in and year out. It really is like a sport. Like being a cheerleader is essentially like competing in a sport. You got to train, you got to practice, you got to prepare. There's a mental game. There's a lot that goes into it. So it's not just like a bunch of good looking airheads who go out there waving pom-poms in terms of being a cheerleader. It's a very respectful line of work. And so the notion of like, well, if you're a cheerleader, like that's just, you know, that, that that's so passe. Like, no, we got to do a co-ed dance squad. I certainly don't look at it that way. And I don't think most people look at it that way. The problem exposed by the sexual harassment scandal wasn't that the role of the cheerleader was archaic. The problem exposed by the sexual harassment scandal is that people employed by an NFL team were acting like animals. Okay. That's the problem. The problem wasn't the profession. The problem was you, okay? The problem was the people working with the cheerleaders, presiding above the cheerleaders, perhaps even employing the cheerleaders. That's the problem, okay? Let's not confuse this. The cheerleaders weren't the problem. Their profession wasn't the problem. Your behavior was the problem. Acting, again, like animals, okay? Not acting like a human being. That was the problem. That is what has been exposed by the sexual harassment scandal. Like, it's really not that hard. Just don't act like an animal, okay? Act like a human being. That's all. I mean, it's really not that difficult, okay? You got 31 other NFL teams 
And while I'm not naive enough to believe that some of the things alleged against the Washington football team haven't happened with those other teams, it's also notable that you haven't had anything close to this coming up with other teams. You know, if other teams can figure this out, why can't you? That's the problem with the sexual harassment scandal, not the cheerleaders. So that's kind of where I'm at with this. Again, if Washington genuinely believes co-ed dance squad is the way to go, it's going to make for a better game day experience. It's forward thinking. You know, it's going to be something different, something unique, something that's going to set apart Washington from other teams. Go ahead and do it. I'm not against it. But if this is, you know, hey, we can't do cheerleaders anymore. No, you can. Just do it better. Okay. Like it's as simple as that. And to the point of a male dancer on this co-ed dance squad, I can only hope, I can only hope, however many males end up being hired, that they are as good as the immortal Will Ferrell was when he was a cheerleader on Saturday Night Live years ago. My name is Craig. I did drugs once. I am a Spartan. So check me out. (laughs) Yes, one of the all-time classic skits on Saturday Night Live, Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry as the Spartan cheerleaders. Now that's going back a bit. That's like, you know, mid nineties or so SNL. So that's like 25 years old at this point, but you know, you can find it on YouTube. It is classic Will Ferrell. I mean, I don't know if it's the best work he did on SNL because he did a lot of great stuff, but it's up there. It's up there. Will Ferrell as a cheerleader on Saturday Night Live, an all-timer. My name is Craig. I did drugs once. I am a Spartan. So check me out. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. That's how you do male cheerleading. That's how you do male dance squatting. Will Ferrell showed us the way years ago. Let's hope whoever Washington hires in terms of the male component of a co-ed dance squad can live up to the legacy of Will Ferrell. I can never hear that Will Ferrell bite enough. And when he goes, I did drugs once. And, and you have to watch the video because he gets that goofy look on his face. Nobody did facials and body language comedy like Will Ferrell back in the day. I, I guess Chris Farley. Chris, Farley and Farrell. Who is better? Boy, that would be a great debate. If we could take phone calls on this podcast, I'd take calls on that. Who was the better SNL performer, Chris Farley or Will Ferrell? That is an all-time debate. All right, so Capitals. Another win on Wednesday night in arguably the biggest game of the season up until this point. The Caps are doing such a great job so far this year. They get to 13-5-4. and shootout win at the Boston Bruins. So the Caps back to being alone atop the East Division at 30 points, two points ahead of the New York Islanders, three points ahead of the Bruins. Now look, with the Caps, and we talked about this on Wednesday's podcast with Caps insider Tarek El-Bashir of the Athletic DC, there is an element of, I don't know if luck is the right word, but there is an element of the Caps probably not being as good as the record suggests. I mean, 13-5-4, is a very good record, but it's worth knowing now seven of the 13 wins are one goal wins. I mean, more than half of your wins are one goal wins. Caps have had a bunch of overtime slash shootout victories. Now, you don't have to apologize for those, especially given all of the absences slash injuries that the Caps have had to deal with so far this year. But, but, I mean, it is worth noting, like, I'm not sure the Caps are this good, but the results have been really good. No doubt. I mean, alone and first atop the East Division, 22 games into the season, especially, like I said, given the absences and injuries the Caps have had to endure, that's a great job by Peter Laviolette and his players. Caps did get back Evgeny Kuznetsov on Wednesday night. He returned from a two-game absence caused by an upper body injury. I thought played uh, pretty well. Uh, the game was scoreless through two periods. Each team scored a goal in the third period. A third period, by the way, largely controlled by the Caps in terms of five-on-five play. Caps in that third period, 21 five-on-five shot attempts 
to the Bruins 11 per natural stat trick. Caps lone goal in regulation and even strength goal by Lars Eller. 6-14 into the third period to tie the game at one. TJ Oshie picking off the puck. What a great job Oshie did there in the Caps offensive zone above the left circle. Made a great pass to Richard Ponick at the right point. He unleashed a shot from just above the right circle and Eller deposited the rebound from down low off to the right and below the goal line. So really good shot by Eller to get that puck through. Caps had maybe their best defensive game of the season, allowed just 19 shots on goal the entire game, including just one shot on goal in overtime. You know, the Caps, they've not been great defensively this season, but they have been getting better. You know, that's a really nice thing about this recent winning. It's not just, of course, the results. It's kind of how the Caps are doing what they're doing. Their defense has gotten better. Their goal prevention has gotten better. It's really starting to seem like they're buying into and learning and, you know, understanding exactly what Peter Laviolette wants and how he wants done what he wants done. The Caps, they finished the game with 28 shots on goal. Bruins finished the game with 19 shots on goal. And how about what happened in overtime? Caps, five shots on goal. Bruins, one. That's it. You held the Bruins to one shot on goal in overtime. And with the Caps, you know, you talk about the defense, you got to bring this up. So the former Bruins defenseman, Zdeno Chara, is out there last night. And I think this is a good spot to just kind of highlight what's going on here with Chara. And we talked about some of this with Tarek on Wednesday's podcast. But here you have Zdeno Chara in his age 43 season, easily the oldest player in the NHL. And he's out there on Wednesday night playing for 16 minutes, 59 seconds. Zdeno Chara, as you and I speak on this Thursday, Again, age 43 season is number three on the caps in time on ice per game this season at 19 minutes, 18 seconds. Zdeno Chara and his ancient legs are out there game in and game out. And like I just said, logging the third most ice time on a per game basis for the caps so far this year. The Caps during the offseason signed a defenseman, Trevor Van Riemsdyk. He is persona non grata in terms of playing so far this year. He's on a milk carton so far this year. He does not play. Zdeno Chara plays game in and game out. You may remember also this past Caps offseason, they re-signed a restricted free agent defenseman and Jonas Siegenthaler. He's been a persona non grata so far this season. You never see him. Zdeno Chara, a late offseason signing. I mean, those guys, Van Riemsdyk and Siegenthaler, they were signed slash re-signed in October. The Caps didn't sign Chara until December 30th. Okay, again, age 43 season. He was drafted, Chara was, in the third round of the 1996 NHL entry draft. 1996. That Will Ferrell Spartan cheerleader skit was a thing when Zdeno Chara got drafted 25 years ago. And he's still playing, and he's playing a lot, and he's a part of a Capitals defense that is rising. It really is remarkable what has happened with Zdeno Chara so far this season and the extent to which the Caps have used him and the extent to which, for the most part, the guys played well and largely rendered two other guys meaningless in Trevor Van Riemsdyk and Jonas Siegenthaler. It really is one of the more interesting, notable, and in a lot of ways comical developments for the Capitals so far this year. But very good defensive job by the Caps on Wednesday night. Another good game for the goaltender, Vitek Vanacek, who was back out there 17th time in 19 games that Vitek was the Caps starting goaltender. He stopped 18 of the 19 shots that he faced in regulation and overtime, stopped all three of the shots that he faced in the shootout. Now, he was not tested much. Uh, per natural stat trick, Vanacek faced just three high danger shots 
the entire game versus 11 low danger shots. But look, what he faced, he largely did a good job with. Again, he stopped 18 of the 19 in regulation slash OT, stopped everything he saw in the shootout. In terms of the one goal that Vanacek gave up, it was an even strength goal by David Pasternak. 119 into the third period, came on a 2-1-1 breakaway ignited by Brad Marchand uh, getting the puck away from John Carlson near the blue line in the Caps offensive zone. So that was a bad sequence, but Vanacek delivers again. How about this with Vitek Vanacek? You know, we got into this with Tarek again on Wednesday. Uh, so the Caps go into the season. It's supposed to be Ilya Samsonov as the number one goaltender, Vanacek as the number two. Samsonov did not play that well, then dealt with the COVID-19 protocols, missed a ton of time, didn't do all that well during his stint making rehab starts for AHL affiliate Hershey, made four starts and was very uneven over the course of them. This is Vanacek's job. I mean, Laviolette may not say it, but Vanacek has surpassed Samsonov as the Caps' number one goaltender, you know, at least for now and maybe permanently. We'll see. But how about this with Vanacek now? His last seven games, 5-1-1, one, and one, a goals against average or as they say in hockey, a goals against average of 1.84, which is outstanding, and a save percentage of 928. Vanacek has been so good. The Caps have leaned on him so much, and he has largely delivered so far this year. And then one other item from uh, Wednesday night's game. So Alex Ovechkin, he, you know, he's not piling up the goals. He's not piling up the points so far this year, at least not in that Ovechkin-like manner that we've become so accustomed to. But so often in hockey, you can't just go by, well, how many goals does he have? Or how many assists does he have? Ovechkin on Wednesday night was held pointless, but Ovechkin was very active in this game. I thought this was a very good game for Alex Ovechkin. And he could have finished with like two or three goals in the game. Alex Ovechkin had a game-high five shots on goal. He had a game-high 16 total shots, including a game-high nine missed shots. And he had a game-high six hits. He was everywhere. He was sending pucks at the net, you know, like crazy. Now, they didn't all connect in terms of becoming a shot on goal, but, you know, puck possession, Ovi was all over it in terms of chances, and he was physical. Again, game-high six hits uh, on Wednesday night. Now, he did have a couple of penalties, had two minors. Uh, Ovechkin did first period interference penalty, third period slashing penalty, but uh, I liked a lot of what we saw from Alex Ovechkin. Caps keep rolling. This has been a tremendous start to the season. Caps have had a lot of excuses not to do well They've done well, and they got another big game coming up here back at the Bruins Friday night at 7. So a good night for the Capitals on Wednesday night. A bad night, though, for the Maryland Terrapins on Wednesday night. Terps fall to 15 and 11 overall, 9 and 10 in the Big Ten. A 60-55 loss at Northwestern. A classic trap game. A classic game that you're supposed to win and of course, you end up losing. Maryland loses to a Northwestern team that comes into the game just 4-13 and in the Big Ten, just 91st in Division One in the NCAA's net rankings, but also as just a consensus four-and-a-half-point underdog. And that is the thing. This was a classic game that reeked in terms of the point spread, a classic game that was set up for the contrarian play of everyone is going to bet Maryland. You know, Terps are riding a five-game winning streak. Terps are eight and four in the Big Ten since the one and five start in conference play. Northwestern isn't very good. And yet Northwestern is a mere four and a half point underdog. The line was begging you to bet Maryland. You run the other way when the line looks that way. And sure enough, that ends up playing out well. Maryland falls by five at Northwestern. Now, this is a bad loss. It was ugly in so many different ways, but it's also not a loss that like dooms the Terps. The Terps, like we talked about, 
off their most recent win. The Terps are in when it comes to the NCAA tournament. And even with this loss at Northwestern on Wednesday night, Maryland, as we speak on this Thursday morning, 28th in Division I per KenPalm.com. Maryland has played the fourth toughest schedule in Division I in terms of average adjusted defensive efficiency per KenPalm.com. Maryland has a very good NCAA tournament resume. The loss at Northwestern doesn't change that. I mean, it maybe impacts the Terps seating. You know, we'll see what happens in the regular season finale. We'll see what happens in the Big Ten tournament. But this is not some game where you're like, oh my God, now Maryland's in trouble. Maryland's on the bubble. No, Maryland's not on the bubble. Maryland is going to the NCAA tournament. But that said, this was not a good game. This was not a good performance. Mark Turgeon was not happy at all after this game. Virtual postgame press conference, quote, I thought the team that played the best won the game. The team that deserved to win won the game. We just weren't worth a flip from the neck up all game. Terps actually jumped out to a 9 nothing lead, but trailed it to at the half at 28-26, and in the second half, had a 55-54 lead with less than two minutes left, but then allowed Northwestern to end the game on a 6-0 run. Terps went 0-5 for on threes over the final two minutes of the game. Terps in the first half actually shot pretty well, but in the second half, just 5 of 16 on threes and just 5 of 11 on twos. And also there was this, Maryland had just seven free throw attempts the entire game. That was it and went just 4-7 on those free throws. It's not like Northwestern had a bunch of free throws either, 11, uh, but Northwestern 10 of 11 uh, on free throws. Maryland did hold Northwestern to a pretty good shooting percentage. I mean, 36.4%. Like, that's good. You'll take that. Uh, Northwestern only went 10 of 29 on threes, but actually did quite well from beyond the arc in the first half. Uh, just two of 10 on threes in the second half. And Turgeon was not happy with the defense. You know, that virtual postgame presser talked about how Maryland did make a lot of mistakes on defense. So, you know, even with the stats kind of telling you one thing, there was a lot to be desired even defensively for Maryland in this game. It was a bad game for Dante Scott, 0 of 4 on threes, just four points, four rebounds, and one assist versus five turnovers. It was a bad game for Eric Ayala, just one of six on threes, just one of six on twos, five points, uh, for him in this game. The two bright spots, Aaron Wiggins was tremendous. You, you hate to see a great performance like this from Wiggins get wasted. Five of nine on threes, 26 points, three steals. And Daryl Morsell, the Terps warrior, the heart and soul of this team, bringing it once again, one of two on threes, 14 points, eight boards, five assists versus two turnovers. But that was it. I mean, beyond Wiggins and Morsell, this was largely a dud by the Terps at a bad Northwestern team. But like I said, the good news is you're still going to the NCAA tournament. It's a question of seeding. It's a question of how well are you playing going into the NCAA tournament. And even with the seeding, you got a chance to patch this up essentially with what you have left. Regular season finale for Maryland, home to Penn State, Sunday night at 7. The Nittany Lions are number 36 in Division One for KenPom.com as of this morning. So if you beat Penn State, that's going to boost your resume because that's a top 40 win in terms of KenPom.com. Remember what happened the first time Maryland faced Penn State this year, though? That was a very ugly loss for the Terps in Happy Valley. February 5th, a 55-50 loss. One of the worst games of the season for Maryland offensively. Maybe the worst game. Terps scoring just 50 points in that game on 35.4% shooting, including 3 of 17 on threes. Basically, a story of that game, Eric Ayala was good. Everyone else was not. Uh, Terps got beat up on the offensive glass in that game as well. That is the concern with Maryland, the offense. You know, the, the defense, I mean, I know Turgeon wasn't thrilled with it on Wednesday night, but the defense is there. The issue is the offense, and Maryland can get cold. 
Maryland can have these prolonged scoring droughts. And if the Terps get ousted early in the NCAA tournament, I would almost be certain that that's going to be the reason. You know, game in, game out, the defense is there, maybe to varying extents. But it's not like Maryland really ever gets scorched defensively. Offensively, you got issues, though. You have inconsistency. You have games where you look good and you don't have many turnovers and you shoot the three well. And then you have clunkers where you don't shoot the three well. You know, you commit turnovers. You're not functioning well. Uh, that, I mean, that's always been the complaint about Turgeon. He's not a great X's and O's offensive coach. So you need guys to make shots. And there wasn't nearly enough of that, certainly last night. And Maryland falls in, in a kind of like a predictable kind of loss. You know, like this was a classic letdown spot coming off the five consecutive wins, coming off what seemed like an NCAA tournament stealing victory with what Maryland did on Sunday afternoon, that 73-55 win over Michigan State at Xfinity Center. Really a complete game win for Maryland. Terps never trailing in that game, beginning it on an 11-0 run. Wednesday night, you got off to a 9-0 run to begin the game. But of course, the outcome ended up being very different. And before we call it a show on this Thursday, I do want to address the major Nationals news that came out on Wednesday. Davey Martinez on Wednesday during a Zoom press conference at spring training revealing that John Lester has flown to New York to have surgery to remove his thyroid gland. And, you know, I think for most people, the removal of the thyroid gland, I mean, it's, you know, not nothing, but it's not like some huge deal where you're like really concerned But with John Lester, as many of you listening know, there is a history of cancer. And so we don't know exactly if this is connected to that or not. But the John Lester story very much includes what happened with him in 2006. September of 06, the Boston Red Sox announced that Lester had been diagnosed with lymphoma. Uh, He went through chemotherapy, returned to pitch for the Red Sox at the major league level in July 2007. It was a really cool story, the way he came back like that. Red Sox ended up winning the World Series again. Uh, in 2007. So we don't know exactly if there's a connection, you know, what the connection might be, you know, I mean, God forbid, were there cancer cells found uh, on the thyroid, near the thyroid? Uh, I know, I mean, I'm not, you know, like an oncologist, but I know that chemotherapy can lead, chemotherapy can lead to hyperthyroidism, you know, this maybe has nothing to do with the cancer, you know, we don't know, we don't know. But uh, it was said that the expectation is Lester could actually be back pitching for the Nats next week, which, I mean, seems kind of aggressive, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. So certainly wish John Lester well, and hopefully he is back pitching for the Nats next week. I'll tell you this about John Lester. If he can be pitching for the Nats next week, he will be pitching for the Nats next week because this, as much as anything, is why the Nats signed John Lester. He posts. He doesn't miss time, like ever, okay? The track record of durability for John Lester is surreal. He made at least 31 starts in each of 12 consecutive regular seasons, 2008 through 2019. I mean, think about that. In a time in which one guy after another, in terms of pitchers, misses time, undergoes Tommy John surgery, you know, has a shoulder problem, has forearm soreness, you know, has a knee issue, you know, hamstring strain, oblique strain. I mean, you know, there are a million things, neck troubles, trapezius troubles. We've heard it all. When it comes to pitchers missing time, especially in recent years, John Lester doesn't miss time. At least 31 starts in each of 12 consecutive years. And last season, the shortened season, he made the equivalent of 32 starts because he made 12 starts in a 60-game regular season. He doesn't miss time. He is an innings consumer. He eats up innings season in 
and season out. Now look, Lester is coming off back-to-back bad seasons. That is true. 2019, he had an ERA of 446. Last season, 2020, he had an ERA of 516. So yeah, he pitches a lot. He hasn't really pitched that well in recent years. His average four-seam fastball velocity in 2020, a career-worst 89.8 miles per hour for fan graphs. He was at 91.3 miles per hour in 2016. So the velo, as uh, baseball people like to say, really has dipped down in recent years. But the guy is tough as nails. You know, he is one of the best postseason pitchers really in Major League history. Like, I'm not overstating it when I say that. Major postseason pedigree possessed by Lester. Three World Series titles, 07 and 2013 with the Red Sox, 2016 with the Chicago Cubs. He was the MVP of the Cubs 2016 NLCS win over the Los Angeles Dodgers. And Lester in his career over 154 postseason innings, a 251 ERA. I mean, that is outstanding. Like you talk about the best playoff pitchers of this generation. You're clearly talking about, you know, Madison Bumgarner. And you're also talking about Steven Strasburg, 100%. But you also got to mention John Lester. I mean, 251 playoff ERA over a sample of 154 innings. That is tremendous with John Lester. So wish him the best. Uh, Hopefully he's back sooner rather than later doing what he does, which again is chewing up innings season in, season out. Uh, This is set to be Lester's age 37 season. All right, uh, another thing with the Nats on Wednesday. So they played again. It was a lengthy exhibition game. It was at times a painful exhibition game. Uh, 8-5 loss to the Miami Marlins down in Florida in Grapefruit League play. And some things from this game to be mindful of. So Juan Soto did make his spring training game debut. Uh, Juan Soto had fouled a ball off his right foot, had yet to play in an exhibition game until Wednesday. Didn't show any signs of discomfort, so that was good. With Soto out there, you had what seemed to be what Davey is going to go with in terms of his lineup, at least, you know, regarding the top six this season. He had a DH yesterday in Alex Avila, so you know that's not going to be the case in the National League. But your top six on Wednesday, Victor Robles in the leadoff spot, Juan Soto batting second, which is where he should bat. That's where the smart teams put their best hitters now, get them the most plate appearances possible or, you know, within reason in terms of possible uh, over the course of the year. So Robles one, Soto two, Trey Turner three, Josh Bell four, Kyle Schwarber five, Starling Castro six. Um, look, if Bell and Schwarber get back to where they were at in 2019, if Robles blossoms, that's a very good one through six. Now, there are a lot of ifs there. I'll grant you that. But maybe in a sign of things to come, both Schwarber and Bell did homer on Wednesday. We had our first Schwarbaum for Kyle Schwarber as a national, and Josh Bell went deep as well. It's a huge issue. We've talked about it. You really can't emphasize it enough. When it comes to the Nationals offense, you need Victor Robles and Carter Keeboom to take big steps forward as batters, and you need Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber to get back to where they have been at. And the good news is they've been at good levels very recently. You know, Josh Bell was not good in 2020 for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but he had a monster 2019 season. Bell in 2019 had an OPS plus of 142. All right, 100 is league average. His OPS plus was tremendous that year. He slugged 569, Josh Bell did, in 2019. You know, Kyle Schwarber, like Bell, bad 2020, yes, but there is a track record with Kyle Schwarber of being a good batter. You know, he's not a good defender. Uh, He's not going to make anyone forget, you know, Vince Coleman in terms of base running, but Schwarber can bat. Schwarber can get on base. He's got to get back to that. Uh, you know, and not be the guy we saw in 2020 when he batted 188 for the season and had a slugging percentage 
of 393. So yeah, I mean, a lot of ifs with the Nats lineup, but a sign hopefully of things to come with Bell and Schwerber going deep. Soto in there at that number two spot. Uh, baseball season is coming. April 1st is opening night for the Nationals at Nationals Park. The other thing with the Nats from this exhibition game on Wednesday was another bad adding for Eric Fetty. So with Lester having to get take, uh, having to take care of this thyroid issue, uh, Davey had to reconfigure some things in terms of who's pitching. And so Eric Fetty kind of bizarrely now has already made two spring training game starts. And the first start that really, really did not go that well. That was in that Grapefruit League opener, uh, this past Sunday afternoon, the four-all tie with the St. Louis Cardinals. One run in one inning. I mean, that's not, you know, the end of the world, but he threw just 12 to 28 pitches for strikes. He gave up a single, couple of walks, and a wild pitch. Fetty on Wednesday, three runs in one inning. Uh, top of the first, he gave up, or he allowed four consecutive Marlins to reach base with one out. Fetty went double, walk, three-run homer to Adam Duvall and single in succession. Not good, not good. You know, Fetty already is not a a person who is primed to be in the rotation for this upcoming year. You know, he's battling, we know, with Joe Ross and Austin both for the number five spot. Joe Ross is the clear favorite for that spot. So Fetty had to convince you that he is worthy of that spot. And he's 0 for 2 so far in terms of these spring training starts here. Uh, with the Nationals. All right, that will do it for you and for me. For now, you have a comment, you have a question, you have a complaint, let me know. Let me have it. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. And like I said at the top of the show, the way we can do GoGo Thursday is via you. You are in a GoGo band. You know of a GoGo band. You can submit to me songs and I can play them for you. They gotta be good. I'm not just gonna play any old thing, all right? I want quality. But email me what you got, and I'll go ahead and play it, and we can honor the music of the nation's capital. We can pay homage to the music of Washington, D.C. on this podcast that way. The Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com again uh, to send me your go-go submissions. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. My name is Craig. I did drugs once. I am a Spartan. So check me out. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.